Hello and welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast, where we have inspiring and exciting episodes and conversations about climate change, veganism, health, and all things around how we can create a clean, green, and sustainable future for us, the planet, and all beings. This is your monthly debrief, where we talk about some exciting things that are happening in and around the space, look at a particular topic or two, and do a deep dive and it is some really informative stuff that we've got in this episode where I'm joined with my beautiful co-host, Shana Harrington. Hello. Welcome again to another rendition. How long have we been doing this now? I actually have no idea, but I like to call this podcast or this episode Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk with an environmental spin. But that is our Pillow Talk. That, that is very much our Pillow Talk. So. <laughs> We are using a new set of mics for those visually inclined, um, it, but it is my old set of mics. We've got little lapel mics on, um, which is super fancy so we can move around freely. Uh, but the reason we have these on is because we're in Asia, traveling and microphones, the ones I have anyway, would have weighed us down like five kilos. Bulky as. Super, super bulky. So. We thought, let's just got, we got, I got these two lapels, which should be high quality. I'm hoping it sounds good. I'm not too sure. Um, I've used it for video work in the past and found that it actually works pretty well. Um, but I'm excited to be able to actually move around and not worry about a microphone or hitting it um, or staying a certain amount of distance. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, look, maybe, maybe I can still manage to do it somehow <laughs> with those sounds. Um, but yeah, we're in Asia. It's been a month now that we're traveling around. How have you liked the continent? Loving it actually. Loving it way more than I expected to. Mm, feels nice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's your what's been so we've gone to Bangkok where we spent five nights, Chiang Mai where we spent nine nights, um, then Phuket where we spelt spent seven nights and now we're in Cambodia where we've just finished we're just finishing our time in Phnom Penh. So what's been your highlight so far? I really love Chiang Mai. Yes. And visiting Chiang Rai for the day. Um, I'd never been there before. Obviously, I'd been to Phuket, mm. and you had been to Phuket. Yeah. We'd both never been to Bangkok either. Yeah, that was a really that for both of us. It surpassed both of our expectations. Bangkok. But yeah, because you just think it's hectic, it's heavy, dirty. And, it's a big city. And look, it is a big city. It is, and well, we could massive. say it's dirty as well. It, well, well, there was some. Phnom Penh things. is yeah. a lot worse. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely sad, but vegan food, my goodness. So far, so good. Yeah. What's, um, let's give people a debrief because I've actually done, back when this was the How to Travel Vegan podcast, I did an episode of Bangkok, I believe. I did one on Chiang Mai. I did one on Phuket. I hadn't done Phnom Penh or Did you just Reap. say Phuket? Yeah, Phuket. Some people say Phuket. Some people Do say, not say Phuket. Is that not a good thing? It's not. Called Phuket. Phuket, whatever it's called, it's okay. I'm just uncultured here for a moment. Um, so in Bangkok, well, so far Thailand was incredibly easy to be vegan. Yeah. So easy. Lots of like fully vegan restaurants. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the shock, you know, because it's not like there's a language barrier. Like anything on the menu you point to, it's vegan. Like you're okay. And there's a lot of things that were accidentally vegan and we can't deny that street food and those local vendors don't have a little bit of a language barrier there where we maybe had to use Google Translate once or twice. Um, but there was so many 
vegan options, no matter where you were. Bangkok especially. Yeah. Like Chiang Mai had a lot, but Bangkok had just a ridiculous amount. I feel like no matter where you I stayed. I feel like Chiang Mai had way more than even Phuket. Mm. Yeah, Phuket I, kind of disappointed me in terms of vegan. Now, it was still great food. Like our favourite place was probably, goodness, I, look. Go, go vegan? Yeah, it was go yeah. vegan. Every time we went there, incredible food, incredible service. I think we went three times. We went three times, times yeah. yeah. And, and the guy was lovely and yes. they do they have a yoga studio as well. Yeah. But go vegan cafe if you're in Phuket, that's definitely the way to do it. Um, in Bangkok, what was your highlight, would you say? I'll go first if you're still thinking because okay. the vegan table. I was going to say that. Yeah, it's the... not cheap. No. It wasn't. We racked up a bit of a bill. Definitely, I think probably slightly less than Western prices, but nowhere near your Asian prices. No. Um, best cheesecake I've probably ever had in my life. Um, <laughs> yes. You moaned at every single bite. Yes. Yeah. It was very sexual experience. <laughs> But even the pizza, like yeah, Western food. Yeah, the pizza food, was excellent. Uh, it was a wood fire oven and the mm. owner was, or, or the persons that, everyone we spoke to there was incredibly nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah and there was, there was lots of other places in Chiang Mai. Do you have a favourite? No, I don't think so. Good Souls was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I really like hummus. I'm going to oh, say yeah, hummus. hummus it was, it's Mediterranean food. So we're, we're just, the reason I'm wanting to bring up these places is firstly to definitely solidify the idea that vegan is so easy to travel in Thailand in particular because that's what we'll talk about but it's it's just it's super easy but yeah hummus was this Mediterranean place and you come in they give you a free drink which is awesome oh, super yum it was so yum um and it was just like um falafel wraps which was like what 80 yeah like pita sandwiches they were called three dollars two dollars like these these meals and you're just like so yum and you finish with baklava it was just a great experience yeah the free baklava as well which you double down on of course so the food 100 percent easy and so much great yumminess and i think you know pion pen so far as well has been super easy mm. um but i wanted to touch on something that we can maybe both talk about which is our experience going into a village's hut in Thailand. Yeah. What an incredible, incredible story. Give us the brief. Goodness. So we were doing a bit of a walk through, what was it, the village? Hamong Village? Hamong Village, yeah. And got on the motorbike and we went exploring. First, we stopped at a little waterfall mm. and that's where we found that little caterpillar. Yeah. If anyone can tell us what that's called. Yeah, we posted it up. We had no idea. It was like a leech-looking thing. It was like super furry, but it was black in colour, white mm. fur. Really strange. Yep. And then after that, we went on to Humong Village, which mm -hmm. was just this little town um, on the hillside. Mm -hmm. Just land, rice fields. They had heaps of coffee. Coffee, yeah, coffee farms. Yeah. yeah. Lots of shops and little markets, obviously for tourists. Mm -hmm. And then... You had to pay to get into their village. Mm, which was like 10 baht, like 50 so cents cheap. or 40 cents or something. Yeah. And as soon as we got in, what did we do? Oh, we <laughs> shot the little wooden archery thing. Yes. It was like 40 baht for 10 shots, something like, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's $2. Let's just have a bit of fun. Yeah. Did some shots. Um, and then we just kept walking. Did not know where any roads led. It was just, it was so rural. And yeah. on our way to the village, we... Walk past these two Canadian blokes and yes. 
they were like, oh, is there anything there? And we were like, yeah, it's an actual hike that you can do, but it was quite foggy and rainy, but we're like, oh, it's so pristine and beautiful. And you just hear, like there's meant to be gibbons in the area. Um, so you just hear lots of sounds and, and nature. And it was just- Birds galore. Oh, birds galore and super lush and green. But we continue walking on. Um, we only did part of the hike because we had to get back mm, to do work. Work, yeah. But the, the part that we did, we were just walking through some farmland and we saw some bananas growing. Yeah, little of tiny bananas. There's just... a chooks running around. Yeah, chickens everywhere. And then across the field, there was a man that yelled out to us. I yelled out to him first. I see him and I'm like, oh, Sawadika, which is like the hello. And he yells out, Sawadika, back. And then we just keep walking. We're just like, oh, what a nice man, nice looking man. Mm. Um, and yeah, he eventually just starts signing to just. I'm like, what are, you, what are you, like, I'm like, do you really want me to come out? Like, he wasn't close. No, he wasn't. Like, this was like 50 to 100 meters. And it wasn't like there was a path no. to his house. I had to walk, we had to walk through crop fields, like yes. his own crops. I'm like, what are you, you're telling me to go there? <laughs> but of course we did. Yeah. We wanted to go and meet this man who mm. we, at the time we were like, surely he knows no English. Yeah. He's standing in front of this little shack like building. Mm. And you could tell like what tin roof it yeah. was not made of wood yeah. it's yeah it was not a home but anyway we went over and he invited us in his house because it started raining it, did. it was yes. quite rainy and i think he was saying come in and come yeah. indoors for a little bit and it was cold for him wasn't it yeah he was, like, oh, it was too cold yes. it was like 27 degrees celsius yeah it was or something. so yeah. hot so he pulls up these tiny little stools what mm. like this big yeah tiny tiny little stools and gestures for us to sit down. So of course we do, and he's sitting, well, kind of squatting yeah, around. Yeah, doing the Asian squat. Yeah. yeah. That Cut. full ankle mobility, beautiful form. How do they do that? Oh, you can of, do it. It's a lot of practice. It's just stretching, it's working the ankle mobility. That's that's a lot of what it is, and hip flexors, yeah. Okay. Moving on. I'll start working on that. <laughs> so he's squatting down around this pot that's over this, like, what coal fire? Yeah, it was like a coal wood fire, like it was super warm in there. I'm like, I'm oh, sweating for us, even we're more. Like, get us away. We're drying up though. Yes. So, yeah. But he was kind of hovered over over it, warming himself up. Yeah. And you could tell he was cooking. So he's yeah. like cooking his breakfast or something. And then there was another little girl in there and she started speaking a little bit of English yeah, to us. Yeah. She and asked our names. Mm. What else? She was I, I don't even know what she said it was definitely the names and we asked like do you live here and she's like yeah we live here and as if you if you're picturing like in a shack and i i reckon i could take four steps in every direction and be at the end like it was a yeah. small shack like maybe slightly bigger than a kid's treehouse like yeah. it was truly small and you could just tell that they lived in that mm-hmm. like there was four four of them there i think five. or even five yeah so there was a lot yeah but continue on the story and they had sheets to put like privacy sheets up. Mm. So you could tell their bed was over there behind the sheet, which we didn't obviously go past. And then you could hear a little TV in the background. Mm. Again, I I don't even know if this place had electricity. So I don't know how they had a TV, what was happening, um, but it was just so cute. And then what? Well, then he comes over and gives us corn, like this corn that, and. You know, last last monthly paradigm, if you tuned in, I talked a lot about how we've kind of narrowed down a lot of our foods 
and corn was one of them. So there used to be many hundreds and thousands of pieces of corn, but really we've nailed it down to two. And this corn that he gave us was so discolored, discolored. Like the corn we see now, the sweet corns are all um, yellow. This was like purple and next spot was white and then red and then black it was, and it was different heights mm -hmm. and different thickness like it was just a chaotic piece of corn and it was quite small too wasn't it yeah and it was chewy and yeah, it, was like it had like sticky. a meaty yeah sticky is a good description and i'm just like this the the thought on all this this guy has nothing his carbon footprint firstly very oh. small probably very very tiny um and he's given us something like we're you know we're white in color when someone sees us in these Asian countries, they can assume we're quite well off, especially we're if we're, we're, privileged. we're privileged. That's correct. And he gives us this corn without asking for anything. He, how's he going to ask for anything? I can't speak English. No, and we, we tried. We can't speak Thai. We tried doing the translate with him, and uh, we asked him how many children he has, and mm. he understood that a yeah. little bit, and he told us he had three children. Yeah. So this man lives on this farmland in this shack and he is giving us corn yeah. this is corn that could go to his children's mouth this could go to his you know next meal it doesn't have to go to us but he has this kindness to offer us food mm. what, what 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 yeah it's it's super humbling experience and it just kind of talks again of the values that we have as a society and, you know, he lived on this farm, beautiful hydroponic system going through and watering all these crops. Once we had to eat the corn, he's like, just throw it, it'll compost, the yeah. chooks will get it or, or whatever it may be. And, and to say thank you, we couldn't do much. We gave him 50 baht, which is about $2 Australian. Um, we, we had a $2 coin that we wanted to give him yeah. as a memento, but we left it at the apartment, yeah. didn't we? So we didn't have that. But we wanted to give him something mm -hmm. just to show our gratitude. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm sure he didn't do that to for, yeah, receive anything. No way. He would, you know, he was very grateful. Because, you know, you buy corn there, you'd be paying maybe 10 baht for the two corn. But we, you know, just gave him that as a thank you for housing us and... Mm. and you know, just, just as a kind And we were there for, what, 10 minutes yeah, or something? Yeah, just having but a chat we, by the fire. Just to be able to have that experience was priceless for us. Mm. We stood outside for a bit and he showed us where the corn came from and it was like yeah. in this, like, purple... Yeah. Oh, my God. Beautiful. And then beautiful we just, life. yeah, we saw his wife in the, gut, in, in the Gardening, farm. Yeah. She was farming. Um, and yeah, we met some of his little children. Like yeah. he didn't know us at all. He yeah. doesn't know what we're capable of. But it was 100%. yeah, still it was, invited us. Yeah, yeah. Such a beautiful gesture to kind of the point in all this is the people. If you allow yourself to have experiences like that, I think you will be so much more fulfilled in what you do. Like we, I instigated that. It, and he might have done it regardless of me yelling out so I they car across the field mm. he, but you have to uh, just be kind to receive that kindness back and that's what we've kind of felt through this whole you know four weeks that have now been across asia everyone we've come across has just been super kind super super kind like would help you out even if you had nothing like mm. it's not one of those i help you out you give me a bit of something something like they yeah. would genuinely help you out like no one's here to harm anyone no um and it's you know i think you can have those experiences in western countries like australia us uk but 
I don't know if it's personally just my experience, but I think they're few and far between, especially because it's not culturally appropriate to just talk to strangers like it is here. And maybe that's something we can do as humans to try to bring those lessons onto a more Western uh, framework. But yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience all around to really see something that's, firstly, it wasn't monocropping and just having that lovely in interaction I think they're also very appreciative that they've got tourists there. Mm. So he saw that we were tourists and wanting to maybe give us an experience as well. Yeah. It, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And, you know, there is a dark side when you, when you travel through Asia. And, you know, we've talked about it in the past and it's something we'll get into a lot um, in the episode. But Asia as a continent struggles with plastic. Mm, and we've hugely. seen this firsthand... Uh, for, you look at the streets, there, Phnom Penh's probably the, the worst level we've seen so far, um, but going on the beach, southern Phuket, and crystal clear, blue water, turquoise, absolutely abundant with all kinds of different life. And on the shoreline, if you walk, there is just plastic. Like, I'm not talking, yes, you can see a huge trail of microplastics, but I'm talking, you can see fishing nets and lines, like those, not local, but those industrialized, big, thick, durable nets. And I don't know if that's from us, from them, it's both. It's hard to say. Um, but yeah, that's been a really abrupt awakening to how these people can... It was just strange to see that that's a thing and they still use plastic so abundantly mm. in every... Plastic, going plastic-free here and doing plastic-free July has been the hardest thing ever here. Yep. Going vegan, no problem at all. <laughs> but going plastic-free, my goodness. It is just... People have... You know those like takeaway cups you get in like McDonald's and Hungry Jack's? They have one of those um, little No, more like cups. a bubble teacup. Like, yeah, like a bubble teacup. And they have that in a plastic bag, mm -hmm. a small plastic bag. And they drink out of that from the straw of this plastic drink that's in a plastic bag. And they sell like soups and curries in plastic bags, like tied, like a like a goldfish. A really soft plastic as well. So imagine a hot soup in a soft plastic bag. It's plastic soup, really. It's yeah, it's absolutely horrendous the amount of plastics that have plagued all reaches from everywhere we've gone, from the, the rivers and the mountains and the beaches and the streets. Like it is heart wrenching. Mm. But yeah, uh, Phnom Penh has been by far the worst. Mm. It's so, so strange to see. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it just comes, we'll talk about the plastic, but I think it really comes down to one education we are talking about off, off mic, but also government funding facilities is just hugely lacking here. Yeah. And not only that, places like Australia are selling our, recycler, our recycling and rubbish to countries like this and they don't have the infrastructure for it. Correct. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not a good system what is currently going on. Yeah. Um, but on other positive news, I'm just trying to disperse it closely. We went and visited this incredible um, sanctuary called the Pnom Tamau Wildlife Rescue Centre and I'm skipping over Living Green, mm. which was another... Um, elephant sanctuary. We're very, very careful in selecting a sanctuary um, to visit because a lot of people call themselves a sanctuary here, 
but it, it's just not a sanctuary. You have to do your research, do your diligence, because they say sanctuary, but in their hand they're hiding a nail, or they're whipping them, or they're, you're riding the elephants, and it's fun, but it's absolutely destroying their spinal cords. The same thing's happening in Australia, though. With elephants? No, as in the word sanctuary. Yes. Hillsville Sanctuary. Hillsville Sanctuary, yeah. Which, you know, it might be better than, say, Taronga Zoo. Taronga mm-hmm. Zoo. Taronga. Yeah. Taronga Zoo. I don't know, I haven't been there, but it's still exploiting animals 100%. for money. 100%. And I, I mentioned Living Green because we did our research and these were rescued elephants from um, the, circus. the circus, the wildlife trade, um, etc. Pets. Pets, yeah. So this one I mentioned before, the Pton Tamau, Wildlife Rescue Center, that's from, I believe, Wildlife Alliance um, is the major parent company, and these guys are incredible. Um, so if you're in Phnom Penh, I highly recommend, and this is unsponsored, of course, but the way that they cared for the animals, so we, I ran with a tiger, we had some, we got shirts painted by an elephant, and nothing is is forced. So the tiger is uh, was a rescued tiger, and it's held there for protection because poachers are trying to come in and actually poison it and take it to... Mm be sold the elephants is from the wildlife trade that they actually um government cars intercepted the trade midway through and brought some of the elephants in a lot of them are from snares so wild snares um there, was, there were a lot of animals there abundantly and, and not only that they're trying to rehabilitate these animals so they can be put back into the wild that is that blew my mm, mind. Yeah. They don't want to keep them there. No. They want them to go back into the wild. And of course, we know that isn't going to be possible for all of the animals. So keeping them in captivity, you know, in enclosures there is the best solution because if they do get let out, they're just going to die. Yes. So, you know, giving them a nice life. And the, the tour guides that we had were so knowledgeable and they knew the personalities of each of these animals, mm. didn't they? Yeah, they it did. It was unbelievable. Yeah, no, 100%. So, um, yeah, it is possible to go and visit these. Like I said, we saw tigers and elephants and bear cats and otters, your favorite animal, otters. And you're right, you can't release every animal. They, they have certain rules. So they say, if the animal is born, here so if in like um a, some of the habitats so some of the habitats they have like um different grades so if they're at a certain grade they're starting to get prepped so every six months they move them to a more wild habitat and this is like yeah. forty thousand hectares so it's not a small property by any means it's not a zoo where they the longer the animals there the better more profits they'll make so this is the opposite so because they're enough profit they lose money so they're with the tiger for example they're saying they spend about 40 us a day on their food same with the elephant like that's a yeah. lot of money for i don't know how many elephants they had i think six or something like I think that four. yeah four or six it's it's a lot of money so just understanding the concept using a non-for-profit you can have these incredible experience especially as a vegan which is why i think this topic is important we love animals we don't want them to die um, and they catered for vegan food as well with yeah. the tour um so knowing that you can have these close beautiful experiences without going to a zoo where they're kept in ex- enclosures like there is ways for you to interact with an animal to really connect with the nature and do something for a good cause without going to melbourne zoo or stockholm zoo or some of these horrific places for animals and we went into one of the enclosures what was it um little monkeys was it grade 
middle school or something yeah. for them because they couldn't have the enclosure too tall yeah. because they kept falling yeah, down and hurting themselves. So they had to have it a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were allowed to go in there. We weren't allowed to touch them. No touch we weren't allowed to pat them. There was no eye contact. You couldn't show your teeth. Mm-hmm. These things that they knew to keep us safe, obviously, because they are wild animals at the yeah. end of the day. Monkeys are very smart, so they do imprint off of humans very easily. So we were really privileged to go in there and we just sat there like statues yeah. and the monkeys would climb on us as if we were part of their enclosure. Yeah. Obviously, they knew we were humans. Like, they were playing with my hair yeah. and, you know. Giving you a lick. And yeah, like, they, they knew we weren't part of the wood. But, but they have to know about humans and because... You know, we're a danger to these societies. So if mm. they see a human, they don't need to, yes, get spooked, be wary, but know how to interact. Yeah. Um, which is a big thing for them. So they were very careful with the way we interacted with these animals. And they didn't really let us interact with any animals that were going back into the wild. Correct. So there was a lot of the park that you couldn't touch, no animals you couldn't, like nothing like that, because they knew if they have a good relationship with humans, they might start to go towards the evil and bad humans. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a good point. And then kind of touching on what we're doing next week. So, we're doing an event, um, which is exciting. We are traveling to Seam Reap. Um, and I'm doing the half marathon around Angkor Wat. And you're doing the 3Ks just to have a bit of an experience. <laughs> good time. So, I just wanted to touch on training and plant nutrition for a second. Um, so, half marathon. It's not something I haven't done before. And I just wanted to tip talk about this for a second because I'm training in hot weather and we'll touch on this a bit later in the episode, but you can't drink tap water here because it's it's not sterilized, it's full of bacteria. If Especially if you're from a Western country, we use chlorine to kill a lot of bacteria um, and they don't have that here. So you're going to have quite a big stomach upset if you drink tap water. You've so, probably heard of barley belly. Barley belly is a big one. Yes, most Aussies are familiar. Mm-hmm. So I have a little camel pack. Um, it's two liters and it actually broke in Chiang Mai. So I went and bought another one for $15. Just a little, it was a little, little, um, not the actual bag itself because we reuse, recycle. So instead of buying a whole new bag, I just bought the actual bladder. bladder. Correct. Which Which we didn't even know was a thing Mm. until we were at that shop. We were like, oh my gosh, we don't have to buy a whole new bag. We can reuse our bag and use the new bladder. Correct. So I have this little thing that I fill up in the morning after we use our... Um, SteriPan, which we did mention, we'll talk a little bit about later, and we also boil our water. So this is a way that we can run in the heat. So it's 30 degrees, the sun's out, it's hot. Um, So you just put the water in there, it holds up the two liters. You can also put in um, snacks and whatnot, because if you're going out, you might get stuck somewhere, probably best to have money. But in terms of plant nutrition and hydration, always carry a lot of water if you're doing long runs. So... um, for this Sim Reap run, for example, I'm kind of looking at doing it sub two hours. So in terms of plant nutrition required, um, I did just buy actually a creatine monohydrate, which I'm trying. I don't usually supplement at all, like 0%. I have some protein back at home some days of the week. But what I'll do in terms of nutrition is put some a scoop or two of the creatine monohydrate in. I'll probably put in like two or three cans of coffee into the bladder. Um, I know your face is... Yeah. And then fill the rest with water so I don't have to use the plastic cups that will be supplied by the event. I think you're going to test that out before the event, right? Um, the, the coffee, coffee and the Coffee and all of that? 
I think that would be a smart move, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the idea. Absolutely no struggle with a plant-based diet for an event like this in the heat. Um, something to just be mindful of is the amount of sweat. So when you sweat, you need to drink 130% back of what you've had. So the normal amount you would drink plus an extra 30% of what you think you sweated out. So you need to start recovering that hydration. Um, and in terms of food, I don't think I'm doing anything special to train for something like this, really. I'm trying to eat a lot. We've discovered recently through so many podcast episodes and information that if I go for a run and I burn 2,000 calories, <laughs> I don't need to eat 5,000 calories. Your body is apparently efficient. Um, it just utilizes calories differently. So I'm generally eating maybe two and a half to 3,000 calories a day. Um, so that means I'm not struggling at all with the protein, no carbs, no fat. Um, we're eating out mostly. I think when you're fruit. you're trying to order off the menu, you're trying to look for the most things that have yes. uh, an assortment of plants or a rainbow. Yeah, I'm definitely looking for especially tofu, tempeh. Um, protein dense. And protein dense like potatoes, pumpkins, lent lentils even beans. are a big thing. Beans, yeah. And, and a lot of salads as well because especially if you're traveling around Asia, um, I think it's important to still make sure you're getting your greens and your micronutrients. That's, that's vital. Because a lot of people, especially if you're traveling full-time, a lot of people um, you know, might travel for five days. You're okay if you have no nutrients. You can go with just water for five days. Megarine every mm, day. <laughs> that's it. But if you're traveling for the long term like we are, you need to make sure that whether you're eating out or whether you're cooking at home, you need to make sure that you're getting your greens in and look at an abundance of different kind of plants, especially if you're in Asia trying those seasonal foods. So um, I just wanted to mention that there's absolutely, if, if you're going for a half marathon, no matter the weather, I think the water and maybe pairing that up with um, some sort of fruit of some kind, or even in Asia, if you, you can carry a smoothie <laughs> tumbler around, get smoothies on the way. Um, but I just wanted to give an update on that front. Going well. Going well. But we are about 30 minutes in and haven't touched on our stories. <clears throat> so How many headlines have you got? I've got a few. Um, look, I think it's mainly a deep dive. I think we'll take a lot of time. But I'll let you start with the first story. McDonald's has introduced the McPlant to Australia. Actually, just Victoria. Really? Is that like right now? Right now. It's okay. there. It's available. So the McPlant originated in the UK after a deal with Beyond Burger. I believe this is a contact. Oh, I, I believe this. Sorry. I believe this contract is going for a few years. Mm -hmm. In the UK, the McPlant is vegan, full vegan, non-dairy. Um, they've actually got non-dairy cheese and non-dairy mayo wow. included in it. So it's been brought to about 200 stores in the US as well. And it's not vegan. So it still has dairy cheese and it still has dairy mayo. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been introduced in Australia. Mm -hmm. So the McPlant, don't be fooled, it is not vegan. Vegetarian. It is vegetarian. Okay. It's good to note. Um, I think the Hungry Jack's burger can be made vegan though. and I'll need to cross-check that. But I had it years ago when V2 first came to Australia. And sorry, Hungry Jack's, but it's rubbish. Uh, <laughs> I still haven't had it. So I, need, no I do need to try. But like we don't eat this food. No. This, you know, this is for those people that have... 
um, non-vegan friends but want to maybe try and convince the just a little push yeah instead of getting your uh, what's the burger big mac or something mm. just get that one just trying out different things that yeah. different market but i think that's a good point it's not a health food and i think this is a great opportunity to talk about a deep a little kind of journalistic piece i did on instagram the other day about um will burgers make you transgender the impossible burgers so this is and I'll try to remember as many details as I can, but this was absolutely hilarious and ludicrous. A veterinarian, I think his name was Andrew Lang or Andrew something, he came out and said this ridiculous um, Facebook post that said, the Impossible Burger has 44 milligrams of estrogen, yada yada yada, a few swear words in there, this burger will make you a female. And that's in quotes, this burger will make you a female. And I said, this is the weirdest claim ever. So it's pretty easy to find. And it was actually a bit hard to source the original because it was his name was like something with numbers and codes. Like it was like it looked like a meme account. Right. So it was hilarious. And of course, Sean Baker, he retweets it without even looking into the source. So he's retweeted something onto his thousands of followers that love that information. Mm. And so I ended up getting hundreds of thousands of impressions within a few hours of it going live. So it was just craziness. Anyway, so let's clarify something. So 44 milligrams of estrogen, that's the claim. Firstly, the Impossible Burger has zero grams of estrogen, micrograms. And the reason is, is because estrogen can be only found in animal and human, if you eat humans, products. It's only found in animals. That's it. Plants have phytoestrogens. So that's, a, that's an estrogen-like compound that has different effects. It's regulated very differently by the body. So... The Impossible Burger doesn't have 44 milligrams of estrogen. It has 2 milligrams of phytoestrogen. So it's absolutely no rhetoric. So 44, 2. 44 grams of estrogen, but the actual truth is 2 grams, two milligrams of phytoestrogen. So, so, so I was just like, if the numbers are the same, maybe you thought. could get away with it. No. But the numbers and the actual hormone mm. is completely Yeah, it was. Off. And... We know that phytoestrogens are very beneficial. So an example of a phytoestrogen that I think a lot of people are familiar with is resveratrol. That is a class of phytoestrogen, which we now know, you know, people find it in your red wine, your grapes, certain foods like that. To that help with anti-aging. Anti-aging. Oh, that sounds horrible. It sounds, <laughs> don't get, keep that resveratrol away from me. Um, yeah, so I thought to just add on. I'm not saying a health, Impossible Burger is a health food. No. I'm just saying... It's not going to turn you from a male into a female. And it's not going to damage you if you're a female. You're not going to become super feminized or anything like that. So I just found it to be very, very funny. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. But I do just want to touch on what the McPlant consists of. Okay, go for it. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So it's their famous sesame seed bun. Mm -hmm. Onion, ketchup, mustard, Mm -hmm. um, tomato, lettuce, and pickles. And obviously, the Beyond Burger. Yeah. So it's not like if you're taking off the mayo and the cheese, it's got no sauce. It's, yeah, yeah. it's still got sauce and it's still going to be tasty enough. I mm-hmm. don't know. I've never had a Macca's burger I know, so in weird. my whole life. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure how it actually tastes. But um, from my understanding, Macca's will monitor the way people are ordering this burger. So they're going to be monitoring whether people are taking off the dairy products mm-hmm. and That's then good. we will they will alter it as they see fit 
That is, I'm really excited to see that mm. whether they get a lot of vegan, because there are a lot of junk food vegans. They're, they're really, oh, for sure. really, I think there's a Facebook page dedicated to junk food vegans in really? Australia. And I think there's just junk food vegans as well. Right. I've seen a US one as well. So it's, it is a huge, huge market. And look, everyone likes to dabble into junk oh, food every now and then. Absolutely. It's like, you know, if. It's your hangover food. Right? Yeah. Which I wasn't allowed to get after our engagement party. No, but. I don't allow that kind of stuff. Get out of here. <laughs> So well, they will address it accordingly in mm. the future if they see fit. Yeah. We will see. Um, so everyone go and order it and take off the dairy. But um, another thing to note, the patty will be cooked on the same grill as the meat. Yes. Okay. So. Some people are very funny about cross-contamination. Yeah. You know, in some cases, people say that that's not actually vegan. Yeah. Um, I guess that's open to interpretation. Completely up to you. Yeah. And, yeah, meat products and eggs. It'll be on the same same grill. Good to keep in, mind. in the UK, that's not actually happening. So, so a different grill. Different grill. Bloody so it's UK, completely yeah. vegan. Wow. Happy days for them. Very happy days for them. <laughs> So you don't have to be worried if you are in the UK. But Burger King seem to be really beating Maccas in this space. Mm, and we've spoken about... pop-ups on Instagram and I don't look into it, but I always see these massive lines. lines. Huge lines. Yeah. yeah, of just full vegetarian. I'm pretty sure it's just vegetarian. What is it called? Veggie King? Or did, they, did they change the name or is it still called Burger King? I read somewhere that it was actually a different name. Now you're testing me. I don't know. Okay, yeah. Maybe someone will message us. Yeah, like, let oh, us uh, know if you know. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, they've got vegan pop-up stores and trials. So they're yeah. aiming to have a 50% meat-free menu by 2030. Wow. 50%. That's great. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, I know 2030 is not close, but to even have that on their radar mm. is really excellent. Um, and on a personal note, again, we don't eat it. Yeah. Um, I would love to try it, though. If you've had it, let us know your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let us know. And let us know compared to Hungry Jack's because that'll depend on if Tom gets it or not. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. All right. So Germany is screwing Africa when it comes to renewable energy. Very much so. So last month I talked about how Germany is looking to invest many, many millions and billions of dollars into the African continent and certain coastal countries to look at oil and gas exploration to try to cut off their reliance on Russia. So it sounds great, but it kind of screws over these African countries. And that's what we dived into last month, for those that do remember. Um, and a few days after the episode came out, um, climatetracker.org actually did a deep dive on these exact topics. So they obviously listen to the show, um, which is fantastic. Hi guys, how you doing? Um, now they again mentioned, like I did in the episode, that if Germany didn't want to pay the development of their own renewable sector, they're now creating this whole cacophony of disaster over there. So it just wasn't a good system. Now, what they actually did was incredible, is if they still wanted to build it elsewhere, like they're still looking for gas exploration elsewhere, it's not in Germany, they could help Africa build a renewable infrastructure, which is, I know, mind-blowing, um, where over in Africa, wind and solar are already the cheapest form. Of electricity so they are in some sectors ahead of western countries well, the second driest continent in the world the sun sun wind all that stuff but the powerhouses there are egypt nigeria and senegal 
So Senegal, I think I've mentioned on the show before, I've had some pretty horrific incidents in terms of gas explosions and lots of deaths related to that. But anyway, they first looked at Egypt. So what can Egypt do? And they found that if Egypt went up to 82% in renewable energy by 2035, it would create an additional 1.8 million jobs compared to and in addition to the current government strategy. Is that just Egypt? This is just Egypt I'm talking about. So this is incredible. And it would also prevent 5,300 premature deaths that's linked to the air pollution that's generated from natural gas in the next two decades. So that's Egypt alone. Huge benefit there. And we've been to Egypt. We we know how the air feels. We Super muggy. It was really muggy and it just you just didn't feel like you were getting clean air. And we, we saw like blocks of land that should have had buildings on it, but it was just rubble and dirt and well rubbish Rubbish, just rubbish everywhere yeah that's poor poor management on their part um but yeah huge opportunity there and then kind of jumping across to nigeria if they align with renewables and stuck with a 1.5 degree target they could create 3,400 jobs per year per megawatt hour generated so the reason this figure is really important is because as you know once we start to once everyone starts to make that transition renewable, everyone starts to get a kick up their bum with these actual net zero targets, then we're going to have to start importing renewable energy from other nations. And that's why this megawatt hour is really important because there's, there's seldom a cap to how many jobs this could create and how much income this could create for an economy, especially a developing nation like those in the continent of Africa. So this is really big and it's the same with Senegal. So again, huge oil and gas giant. They don't export a lot of their stuff because they lack the infrastructure. So this is where it gets really tricky, but if they invested those billions into building the infrastructure there, it would be a huge risk as a stranded asset when we're looking at oil and gas because they they don't have it there at the moment. And we know that once a build starts happening, it takes about 15, 10 to 15 years. What's the world gonna look like in 10 to 15 years? A lot of countries are coming close to net zero. Hopefully very heavy on the renewable rather than the... Seriously. Yeah. So imagine building, spending billions there, and then that's all stranded. So not a good idea. But if they stuck to that 1.5 degree target, they could create 6,700 sustainable jobs per, again, megawatt hour of electricity generated. So huge, huge opportunities. And if someone wants to look into that further, I'll leave the link into the... Um, someone should... Go and tell Africa this. Yeah, just how you, or Germany, you know, <laughs> yeah, like true. they could be Germany a huge really investment partner in this whole um, system. Like they could really create something big and great for these these three booming country and population dense countries. But Germany does very well, doesn't it, in renewable sector and everything? Well, I'd, I'm not 100 percent because they actually a big part of their plan was nuclear. Yeah. But from my understanding, a lot of their nuclear plants are currently offline that were built and the, the infrastructure is there. But after the Hiroshima incident in, in southern Japan, they kind of stopped it off. Yeah, they stepped away. But it is a part of theirs and France, their neighbor, their net zero plan. So France is focusing, I think it was actually, I think over 50% from memory onto nuclear energy is one of their big pathways to net zero. Um, yeah, so that's that's my rant on Germany. Scheisenhausen, get your act together. 
sorted out Germany. But I have something on Africa as well. Fantastic. So climate change is killing elephants there. Mm, no good. And we've just spent a lot of time with elephants. We've just been talking about the dangers that elephants already face uh, in the wild. So Kenya's wildlife and tourism minister has come out and said that climate change is now a bigger problem to elephant con conservation than poaching. Whoa, yeah. that's crazy. So in the past year, the country has recorded 179 elephant deaths to the ongoing droughts. Due, only due to the droughts. Wow. This comes after after consecutive year, like consecutive seasons of poor rain. So the rivers and the water plains are drying up. Grasslands have shriveled in this particular game reserve. Yeah, we, we personally learnt about poaching here in Cambodia and there were 300,000 snares mm. found in one single year in Cambodia. Yeah, well, they said that one person in a day could set 200 snares. That's one person, 200 snares. Like, that's a days of work. That's a lot of snares. And, and they explicitly said each one of those means a death. Yeah. It might not be an elephant's death. It might be another animal. It could animal. be a squirrel. It could be, a, I don't know if that bear cat's here. Is that a thing? I'm not, not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but it, for anyone that doesn't know, a snare trap is actually not usually meant for an elephant. Remember that I was saying that? It's generally meant for someone, for an animal that's a bit smaller. Because yeah. elephants can just rip the snare off whatever tree it's tied to. Mm. But of course, it will still do some damage. Yeah. We met an elephant that had their foot amputated yeah, it was because crazy. of this snare. And now this organization actually replaces its prosthetic leg every six months. And we saw the replacement happen. We and did. we saw the, the. They gave us they a took, demonstration. Yeah, they took the leg off. Um, and they were explaining how the elephant, this is a really big sidebar, how the elephant kind of figured out that it's a prosthetic leg. Because yeah. at, at first, like, you'd be scared. Like, what are they putting on my body? And he started to walk on his And at legs. that time, yeah. it was an open wound because yeah. elephant skin is so thick. It takes like a year to, to mm. um, heal over. Yeah. And so, even when they took it off in front of us, it had been years, but there was still like a patch the size of my hand mm. that was like red and, and fleshy. Yeah. So, yeah, insane. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if you don't know what a snare trap is, it's like a noose. But it's kind of like a net, like that um, fishing wire. Yeah, it's fishing type. wire nylon looking mm. thing. But it actually does look quite thick. Yes. That's why it could do that damage. But yeah. So the animal will step into the noose and then pull. Yeah. And then it tightens on the animal's leg and they're either stuck there and mm. they starve to death. Or like this elephant, oh, it will, it will um, eventually die because it's... Lost from its herd. Yeah. It's got, you know. So it, was it, what was the country that you mentioned at the beginning that where this was really? Kenya. And this is Kenya, right? I'm imagining mm. that so many surrounding nations are having such similar Oh, absolutely. Issues. This is just the, the stats that have come out. Um, 179 elephant deaths. That's insane. Assuming that this one might be the most catastrophic. Yeah. But I'm also guessing that they have the most... Uh, population of elephants i don't know 
that's a fact. Yeah. I think I've but seen I've seen this stuff on Instagram before where they do like drone surveillance and they just see like the dead elephant just there. I'm like, this is a bush elephant and this this guy weighs five tons. But we've also learnt how much food they need every day. How much hundred kilos. Hundred kilos a day. So if the grasslands are shriveling up, if the fruit on the trees aren't growing, these elephants aren't eating enough. 100%. Yeah, that's that's super shocking and sad, but we need to start. It, and it just sucks that it's these poorer nations and yes. the animals that are just getting shafted into all of this. But it's really good to see that they're attributing it to climate change. That is a good idea. Rather yeah. than... You know, I don't know what else they could say. What is say, happening here? Yeah, it's someone's voodoo magic yeah. that's killing all these elephants here. So it is definitely getting out there a bit more, which is, is really good to see. And hopefully the education follows on after that. 100%. Are we ready to get into our deep dive? I'm a bit scared. A bit scared. So is it possible to have a plastic-free ocean? Please tell me. Well, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next who knows how long. <laughs> um, it is a very um, complex topic and, you know, I only did maybe five hours of research into this and it's really, it's not enough. Like you can sit there for an hour and you'll accumulate 20 tabs on the first layer of an issue that goes an Arctic level of deepness. It is absolutely insane the amount of issues that plastic has caused since the 1950s region and its invention. So I thought it would be really productive to do an intro before we get into it. Um, I'm not really going to touch on the health impacts. We know that very clearly um, or, or the social environmental impacts, but I thought it would be productive to know that plastics economically cost humanity over 2.2 trillion US dollars each year in environmental and social damages. So the reason why this is important and we're doing an episode on this is because that $2.2 trillion can almost alleviate climate change damage in many, many, many countries. As you could probably alleviate, and there is actually a number, I'm not sure what the number is, but I think you can alleviate climate damage in the continent of Africa with that amount of money. Well, that would cure world hunger. Oh. It would definitely develop systems of regeneration. No, it would cure it. Is there a number for There is a number and it was something ridiculous because... it was, No, it wasn't that big, but someone asked Elon Musk to help and he didn't. So, it wasn't that much. Really? We but, need to get that number. Yeah, we but, need to get that number. Maybe it's next week's, next month's episode, oh. but because there, there would be a way to do it sustainably. You can't oh. just... Here's rice to every human. Oh, no, you know? of course. Yes. Yep. So this is a huge issue for a myriad of different reasons. Um, and before we get into the actual solutions and, and the know-how, I think it would be productive to know what situation we're actually in. It's like setting a goal. If you're like, I want to lose five kilos, but you don't know how much you weigh, you're like, what are you, what are you really aiming for? So is it possible to have a plastic-free ocean? The best way to find out is figuring out how much is going in the ocean and how much is there at the moment, which, as you can imagine, <laughs> is a mammoth of a task since there are parts of the ocean we haven't explored yet and the science is constantly evolving like we've recently found a plastic bags deep under Antarctica 
So there's places that we can't explore or haven't had the time to explore yet where we can find plastic, but I'll, I'll give the best possible estimates that I found. So according to a 2015 study published in Science, they figured out that in 2010, I say figured out, but they estimated that in 2010, 8 million metric tons of plastic entered the ocean, which is 3% of the total amount of plastics made entering the marine environment. So think of the largest marine animal. What is the largest marine animal? The blue whale. It is, in fact, the blue whale. So they weigh up to 200 tons. Oh my gosh. So this, and we're talking about elephants, we're yes. about elephants that are three tons. Three this tons. is 200 tons. That's 40,000 blue whales entering the ocean full of trash every single year. Now, I thought it would be actually really funny to add, not funny, sad, to add this side note, is that there's not even 40,000 blue whales in existence. There used to be. But before British Columbia decided to hunt them down, there used to be about 150,000. We now have about 15 to 40,000 blue whales. So there's more, 15 to 25,000 actually, there's more blue whales in plastic entering the ocean than there is blue whales in existence currently in this day. Wow. So absolutely cacophony. Now there's actually a newer study, so that was 2010, which is the struggle I had was trying to find the most up-to-date recent information. And because this study takes so much time and funding, um, it was actually quite difficult. Well, it's a lot of estimates, isn't it, really? It is, definitely. How are you, how are you ever going to know? 100%. You, you never, and it's always going to be evolved. By the time a study comes out, it might take a few years to get published, and then it's a whole new figure. Mm -hmm. um, but in that study, what was fascinating is they actually said that they think it'll increase by an order of magnitude, which is 10x, by 2030, which is why I'm like, I can't use this 2010 study if they think that now in 2022, it's gonna be increased by probably five or six times. So I had to find a newer one. There was, a, there was actually a follow-up study published in Frontiers in 2018 that found that it's about 15 metric tons now. So it has doubled, essentially. Um, but it hasn't five times. No, no. So that's, but that's it, a plus. It is. 75,000 blue whales worth of plastic. So from right. 40 to 75,000 blue whales. So it is a lot. Um, there is some charts that I'll leave. If you go onto the Plant Paradigm website, I'll leave all the charts so everyone can have a look at. But the way this works essentially is plastic, as we all know, or if you don't know, welcome, it's crude oil. So just like we fossil fuels with the car, it's just processed in a different way into this film, this polymer. And then this plastic then eventually turns into waste when it's created. Now, a certain amount of that, which will dive into percentage, goes back to be recycled. A certain amount of that down cycles, and a certain amount of that goes into this category called burn, bury, befoul. And what this means is that it goes in either into incineration, landfill, dump, or oceans. And all of those options are horrendous. Absolutely, don't want either of them. So we know roughly how many goes in each, actually. So if we're looking at the 300 th 330 metric tons that is produced every year, about 40 metric tons recycles. So it becomes a circular recycling system. So that is very, very small. 280 metric tons of that becomes waste. So I don't know the figures on top of my head, it looks like 80, 85% of roughly every piece of plastic we create turns into waste about some sort of waste that will then enter into try to be recycled again which is that small portion or it'll be incinerated landfill dump or oceans yep. 
So this is where that came from. And then when you look at the ocean category, which is that 15 metric tons, you've got different categories. You've got coastal zones, which you've got fishing and shipping, you've got microplastics, uh, island and waste export. So there's a lot of, as you can tell from this already, it is a very complicated issue and it, it goes so, so deep, pun intended. So now that we understand that, let's go back to the invention of plastic. A 2017 study by Jambeck puts our total production at about 8 billion tons. So just under, it was 7.82 when the study came out, which we can assume, that was 2015. So we can assume it's probably close to that 8 billion tons, if not slightly more. So that's one ton of plastic per existing human. So it, it is a lot of plastic um, that is in the ocean. Like there, there's just a lot produ produced, made in the ocean. So now where the hell is the plastic coming from? So when we talked about a certain amount going into the ocean, 80% of plastic waste actually comes from land. Going into this, I thought it was in the, from the ocean, like fishing, fishing vessels. Mm -hmm. um, now something I'll dive into a little bit because we watched Seaspiracy and it is a very popular documentary in that they claim something and I might have misconstrued, it's been a while since I watched it, but they, in my mind they claim 50% of plastic in the ocean comes from fishing vessels commercial fishing, fishing vessels. In fact, the correct statement is 50% of the plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch comes from fishing vessels. That's so, what I understood. Correct. I misconstrued that completely. Okay. I thought so much was coming from the fishing industry. It was just ludicrous. No. Um, but there's certain sources that between 20 to 30% of all plastic comes from marine sources and fishing vessels usually sits at that 50% mark. But a lot of it is coming from land. Now, I thought this was super ho hopeful when I heard that because we control the land. Yes, we do. We are not fish. We are land mammals. Yeah. And it's so hard to police oceans. They are just so big and so wide. You just, it's, it's impossible. And we've known that from looking at things in the Sea Shepherd. Mm. They do a great job, but it's just so hard. They, they, but there's still illegal fishing going on. There's still Everywhere. all this pirating. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So the McKinsey Center uncovered that more than 80% of the ocean plastic comes from land-based sources. That was the source there. Now, of that, 80% or, or three quarters comes from uncollected waste. And the remainder comes from leaks from within the waste management system itself. So a lot of that just comes from waste, rubbish. So single use thrown out. So their research found that more than half of the plastic leaking the ocean comes from just five countries. Um, look, we're in Asia. We've seen the rubbish here firsthand. Five countries are, I'll, maybe I should give someone a second to guess them all, but China. Can I guess one? Go. Philippines. That is one. Uh, Malaysia. No, not on there. Mm. Vietnam. Vietnam is on there. You're missing two because I said China. You've got two more. Okay. And they're all in Asia. All in Asia. No. Thailand and Indonesia. Really? Yeah. Well, Indonesia's got a lot of river systems. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about why that's important in a moment. So now there's about 8 billion tons in the ocean right now. That's the best estimate. So you can see why they think that there'll be more plastic than fish. So there's even a stat that's come out and I didn't research, but I've heard for every one pound of tuna, they remove from the ocean, two pounds of plastic goes in. So that's, there's a lot of different ways and creative ways to think about how this works because- Is it still that by 2050, there'll be more plastic than fish? I didn't actually research a lot into that claim. I think that is true. 
because it's really hard to find, because I did actually try to find that, it's really hard to find out how much weight of fish there are in the ocean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really difficult to find I that. I don't know there if that some, figure exists. <laughs> not accurately. Anyway, there are estimates, and I think that claim is true. But it is true not just because of plastic, but because we're also overfishing. So there's different variables that come into place there. Um, now, you may be thinking, like I was when I was researching this, how in the world is there 8 billion tons of plastic in the ocean when I'm throwing my plastic in the bin? In the recycle bin? In the recycle bin if it's applicable. Okay. Or even just the bin. Yep. Gotcha. Just the bin. So there's lots of different graphs and analysis and I don't want to bore people with all the stats but there's certain things that I just want to highlight. Of the 5,800 million tons of primary plastic that's no longer in use, so this is discarded waste, 9% has been recycled. So that is a very, very small number of things that are recycled. And there's lots of reason why things aren't getting recycled. So the biggest chunk of that is actually packaging accounting for about 146 million tons. Um, now this is great news because you can directly impact that. Don't get plastic packaging, super, super easy. So with all that being said, to tie this whole cacophony into a knot, we produce 380 million tons of plastic a year and using oceanographic models of floating debris dispersal calibrated by data and corrected for wind-driven vertical mixing. So this is super complicated models and formula were developed. In 2014, Ericsson and team estimated a minimum of 5.25 trillion particles in the ocean weighing 268,940 metric tons. So that's roughly the problem we're dealing with here. Um, so I'm not sure if you'd like to add to any of that, um, but I really want to look at the possibilities of removing just under 300 tons of plastic waste from the ocean. That amount is just unfathomable. Fathomable. Fathomable. It is. You know, I, I, there's no way I could work it out in Wales, but like, <laughs> it, it, it is a huge, huge amount. Um, and you know, there's like I said, nine percent gets recycled. So you putting your thing in the recycling bin, which I'll touch on a bit further, isn't the solution to everything. But no, yeah, it's not. what what can we do about this mess? Well, I think the question is, what is being done about this mess? Mm -hmm. So there are a few organizations out there working on this problem. <clears throat> One I did look at was a nonprofit called The Ocean Cleaner. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard of them. Seen them on the news. Probably, yeah. yeah. And the name kind of just tells you exactly what they're doing. Their website is super interactive. You had mm -hmm. a little bit of play around. It is a really good website, so I highly recommend checking it out. Their goal is to reduce floating plastic by 90% by 2040. That is a humongous Whoa. goal. Yeah. And that and of course that's floating plastic, microplastics that have gone into the sand or you know broken down. There is really little that we can do about that yeah. with the current technology. Maybe one day that'll change, but their goal is to reduce floating plastic by 90% by 2040. Nice. According to research, about 80% of plastic pollution stems from 1,000 specific rivers. Yep. So they would have definitely been the five countries that you mentioned. 100%. And then 
I quote, to effectively, to effectively clean up the oceans, we need to both clean up the plastic already in the ocean and intercept the plastic on, on its way through the rivers. Yeah. Great mission. They are currently working on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which we have heard all about. Yes. Size of Texas in between Hawaii and California. Correct. Good one. You're very knowledgeable. So, I screwed up once on a podcast saying it was the size of like, well, I screwed up the geographical location. Right. Back in the How to Travel Vegan days. Never made the mistake again. <laughs> Don't make a mistake like that. No. So I think there is four or five garbage patches. There's, I think, one in each gyre, which there's yeah. five gyre, five main gyres. Yeah. This one is by far the largest. Mm. Um, the Ocean Cleanup did a 12-week trial with their machine mm-hmm. called System 002. Yep. I think it's also there nicknamed was, Jenny. There was, yeah, it's actually all referred to Tom Hanks movies. Oh. So the, the first one, Jenny. the first one Makes was sense. Jenny. The second one was Wilson Ooh. from Castaway. Yep. Um, is it? I, I thought Jenny was one of the first ones because there was zero zero one A, and it failed hard. So one of the big arms disconnected, and they lost it at sea. So they had to come back early. So they did some re- reiterations, made a second prototype was zero zero one slash B, and now this one is the best Jenny. You know, is the Jenny, best one. Good you're job, a good Jenny. O. Yep. So <laughs> system zero zero two, aka mm-hmm. Jenny. Um, went through this 12-week trial and was deemed safe Mm -hmm. um, and effective. Yeah. Oh, that's good. (laughs) So now they're working on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. Can you guess what it's going to be called? Other than it's... Wait, wait. Zero, zero, three? Good job. Yeah. (laughs) They're not very innovative. I'll be excited when they get to like 007, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Your dad would love that. Yeah. So to clean up an area the size of the Great Pacific garbage patch, a strategic a strat- strategic, and energy efficient solution is required with a relative speed difference maintained between the cleanup system and the plastic. They create artificial coastlines where there are none. Am I, have I lost you? Yeah. <laughs> so they're creating a co- like, so um, they're creating beaches hmm. or they're, they're rounding it up in a way that stimulates that kind Correct. of oceanic currents. Yes. So they're... Because it's they're, like a big hug. The machine is like one big looking big hug. It's a big U-shaped barrier. Yeah. And it guides the plastic the into the retention it. zone. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, at its far end. Yeah. So, so it has like... Hug it in. It, I don't know what it does, but I think it like vibrates the molecules into the center where it then collects it or something. So it's kind of just moving in a way that will accept the plastic into mm, it. So it like understands the current. It's and awesome. yeah, that's just um, the speed that it's going. Yep. It's going like 1.5 knots, which is like slower than walking speed. Yeah. Well, it would carry with it a lot of friction drag with the ocean. So that makes sense. Yeah. Well, on that, which is something I actually found that was really cool based on this, so there's a really cool study published in IOP, um, IOP Science it's called, and they created a model based on satellite tracked buoy observations and scaled it to a large data set of observations of microplastics from surface trolls um, that used to simulate the transport of plastics floating on the ocean surface from 2015 
to simulated to 2025. Um, what they found was actually quite enlightening. So it's kind of very related to what you're talking about now. So in quotes, the simulation showed that the optimal removal locations are primarily located off the coast of China and in the Indonesian archipelago, archipelago of Indonesian archipelago, something like that. For both scenarios, our estimates show that 31% of the modeled microplastic mass can be removed by 2025 using 29 plastic collection operators that are operating at a 45% capture efficiency rate from these locations compared to only 17% when the 29 plastic collectors are moved to like the North Pacific garbage patch between Hawaii and California. So they found that it would be more productive to go China and around Indonesia than it would the, the GBR, whatever the analogy is. G, anyway. So, but 29 they said, 29 of these contraptions could remove a very, very large chunk of our plastic. And that was actually a very in-depth um, analysis and simulation. So it's great news that the ocean cleanup are on the right track there. Yeah, well, they're not only dealing with oceans, they are focusing on rivers as well because as I said earlier, 80% of this plastic is entering from rivers. 100%. More on this contraption though, Jenny, once the system is full, the back of the retention zone is taken abroad, so onto okay. the vessel, yeah. sealed off, detached from the system, and emptied onto the vessel. So there's no open area for the yeah. rubbish to just fly out again. Great, as so that we've is a seen um, like garbage trucks. We've seen rubbish just fly around because yeah. it's not Seriously, open, not, closed not, not properly, sealed. Yeah. yeah. Um, the retention zone is then put back in place, and the cleanup just carries on. Um, once out, once their containers are full of plastic on board, they bring them back to shore for recycling. Mm -hmm. Not your traditional recycling. All of it. I believe a lot of it gets put made into other goods. So as we've seen previously with uh, Red Cycle, they'll make park benches. Um, these guys actually sell sunglasses. So if you're interested in a new pair of sunglasses, go get yourself some plastic ones. You know, it's really sad about that, actually. Um, they're not creating another model. So the only reason they created the sunglasses was a proof of concept. Right. So that was the reason they made it. can be done. It can be done. Like this is our rubbish that we've correct, collected from the ocean, you can produce a cool product like this. Well, I believe what they're trying to work out now is they're trying to sell, well, not sell it, but kind of get rid of it to other companies instead mm -hmm. of making their own sunglasses. Yeah. So it was obviously that taking up a bit sense. too much time. Yeah. So they're outsourcing that, giving the, the plastic to other people, and then they can make products from 100%. it. Um, They're also aiming to offset all carbon emissions from the system and are experimenting with low carbon fuels for their vessels, yeah. which is really cool because it, obviously if they nail it, then that can be brought into the whole world. Mm. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That is very interesting. Each, what, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, what, are, what else have you got for us? Well, every, so more on the great mm -hmm. garbage patch, great Pacific garbage patch. Every six weeks, there is a port call in Canada to change the crew. Oh, so it, yeah. there's a, the vessel, they dock off in Canada, change crew, they offload the plastic, pick up more resources and for the next trip. 
So each trip is six weeks. Their latest milestone was days ago, 25th of July. Wow. They had removed 100,000 kilos of plastic from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. 100,000 kilos. Wow. Isn't that freaking amazing? That's, Days ago. That's, yeah, really, really, 100 tons. Yeah. That's a lot of plastic. Yeah. Cool. That's great. Especially if it's all getting converted into other products and Mm. being used productively, efficiently, and not just going back in. Landfill or, (coughs) and just end up in the ocean again. So that's what they're doing for the oceans. Now for the rivers. Um, They have developed interceptor solutions to help combat river plastic entering the ocean. Mm -hmm. Can you guess what this one's called? I've seen river collection systems before called like transporter or... Close. I think there is one something like that. This one's called the interceptor. Interceptor, okay. So they're intercepting solutions. So um, the interceptor original is the first one. Yeah. Is in four locations. Indonesia, Malaysia, the Dominican Republic and Vietnam. Awesome. So... Well, it'd be cool to see one. And we might be able to. Really? There's actually the Mekong in Vietnam. Oh. So if we just followed this river that okay. we can see from our room. Yeah. Um, they have three other technologies. So there's a barrier, a tender, and a fence. Yeah. So I'm sure you can kind of gather what they do. They are in... There are eight interceptors deployed in five different countries. And then I've got some stats for you. Shoot us the stats. So about 77 kilos of trash was removed in the last 30 days. 77 kilos? Yep. 77,000 kilos. A oh, thousand kilos. Yeah. Wow, 77 tons. Thousand kilos. From these five rivets. Yes, with these interceptor. Yeah. sounds like they're doing a great job, especially like I, I did watch Mark, someone on YouTube, he does these really cool videos um, and he visited these things. I think he did a video of Mr. Beast, so he boarded this one. Do you remember watching this? So he boarded it and it was, I forgot where it was, and Mr. Beast went and cleaned up. Yes, him and some other like people ha- were Yeah, and he joined a bunch of subscribers. There's heaps of subscribers there helping out, picking up plastic manually compared to this interceptor. Yeah. I think it was that one. But that one was... Um, On a river. It moved, though, it didn't did, it? Oh, I'm, I think it just went straight down the river. What yeah, this but one it moved. Do? It did move, yes. Yeah. The, this is stand still, is oh, it? Oh, no. This, the original does stand, um, oh, does okay. move. The barrier and the fence doesn't move, okay. which makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. I showed you a photo of the yeah. fence one and earlier. It was crazy. Yeah. The amount of rubbish that was caught yeah. un- after the fence. but And then amount of trash removed in total is just under 1.5 million kilos. Wow. That, yeah, that's really, really good. I mean... It makes me. It does make me feel hopeful that there is a future of plastic um, removal in the system. Something that can remove this huge amount of tonnage that we've currently got in there. I don't think this contraption would make me not want to visit somewhere like a tourist issue. No. You know what I mean? Like, is that a thing? People are like, I don't want this in the well, water. I don't know. It's I, ugly. Can, I can imagine some cities being, like, oh, you know, like beautiful 
canals in Paris. And you it's know, got this, yeah. and then it, yeah, it's got this thing. But, but it I looks cool. I think so. I don't think it would deter me yeah. at all. No. I think it would actually, like you just said, oh, we might go see yeah. it. Like that's exciting, hundred percent. Because that's the way of the future. This it's- is the reason we can have clean water and clean streets, and the locals can be healthier because there's not plastic absolutely obliterating their marine environment and their urban environments as well. I'd much rather see something like this little contraption boat thing rather than, than plastic, plastic in the canals. 100%. Well, what's really cool about this kind of stuff is like you mentioned, rivers are the stem. And because through science and through satellite imagery in these different modalities, we know where this is coming from and we can identify the lowest hanging fruits. And that's the best part. And, and the solution I've got here is actually really fascinating. So if you recall earlier, we talked about the five countries that produce the, the biggest amount of waste. Now, there is an opportunity to reduce plastic waste here in these five countries by 65%. And doing that will reduce the global amount of plastic waste by 45%. So we're talking about cutting it in half. Stupid. So it's almost the 80-20 rule, focusing your energy Correct. on 20% that causes the 80% of the issue. Correct. It's a six-step system. I'm going to read these six steps oh. I think they're... They're done and written very well, again, by the McKinsey Center. So they've done some incredible work um, and their writers and, and science journalists are absolutely super knowledgeable. So one, obtain real and meaningful commitments from national governments, governors and mayors to set and achieve ambitious waste management targets. Again, you can't see it. You don't know what it is. You can't lose five kilos if you don't know how much you weigh. So you need targets. Two, provide local proof of concepts integrated waste management approaches in a number carefully selected pilot cities so like what you're talking about Dominican Republic and, and these other nations that have the inceptor they're collecting that 77,000 kilos of waste proof of concept it's been done so this is how as we get through time it's going to become easier and easier especially with these poorer nations three building a best practice transfer mechanism of global enterprise to high priority cities like you said with the with Jenny, they're transferring in a closed environment, and we need this. This might not just be Indonesia. Indonesia it might be Indonesia to China, or Indonesia to Australia, wherever it's got the facilities that makes it economically viable. Very important. Facilitating technology technology implementation by equipping technology providers with detailed data. So just being able to track how much rubbish, what kind of rubbish. Is it recyclable? Where can we take it? So knowing the data. And next one is ensuring required project investment conditions are in place. You need money. Simple. That should be number one, really. Number six, bringing leadership and a strategic focus on solutions as part of the global policy agenda on the ocean. So this isn't an Indonesia problem. This isn't a China problem. It is a worldwide problem. That's right. The elephant's dying in... Uh, Kenya. Kenya is a worldwide problem. Their symbiotic relationship with the environment affects people in Kubapiti and it affects people in Utah. Like there's no discrimination when it comes to the environment and the laws of the universe. You got to think of the circle of life. 100%. If one thing gets taken out, it's no longer a circle. You want to hit a kicker in all of this? How much is this going to cost? So before I mentioned that it costs $2.2 trillion in social and environmental damages, this plastic issue. Now, 
Implementing a system like this that again will cut waste in half will cost a measly $5 billion a year. Five People have that money, like human beings, not companies. Super mega yacht Russian oligarchs and these super jet and super yacht and super house people. Elon Musk. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill, and look, Bill Gates probably does some good stuff in his own philanthropic work and Bezos has his Earth, Earth Fund, which maybe we'll look at this in the future. But $5 billion for a way to cut our plastic waste in half. That is hopeful. That's not a stupid amount of money. But the problem here is, again, the proof of concept. Imagine giving the five bill, crap, it doesn't work at this scale. So I don't know from the research that done that has been done, what is the scale compared to the interceptors that they've got going through uh, Vietnam, Dominican Republic, etc. So I thought that would be really fascinating to mention. I think it's, that, that is a good news part of this. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Well, I do have another little contraption that I thought was really cool when I found out about it. Cool. And it was only recently that I did find out about it. <laughs> um, it's called a waste shark. Ooh. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. In simple terms, it's like a RoboVac. Like a Hoover? No. Do you not know what a RoboVac There's is? There's little circle things. Yes. And they do their own thing. And then they the come back to the... It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then they come back to the dock when yeah. they're done. Or their batteries are dead. Yeah, I think that's a Hoover. No, Hoover's a brand. Oh, it's one of those band type situations. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, literally exactly like a Hoover. Uh, <laughs> Hoover, yes. Got it. Yeah. Exactly like a RoboVac. Mm-hmm. It has a docking station and it returns once it's full. Mm-hmm. It then gets emptied by humans, so mm-hmm. it's not completely uh, autonomous, but um, it emits zero emissions. I didn't look into it, so I don't know that for certain, but that's what they claim. Um, It can remove up to one ton of waste per day. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) It has water quality data sensors available. Yeah. So, like, it'll test the water levels and um, the set, like, how sanitary it is and Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm I thought that was super cool. Very cool. It can live up to 10 hours and then it returns back to its dock, full or not, and it will charge its batteries and then go out again. Every 10, you know, 10 hours. That's great. Up to one ton of waste. Yeah, that's a lot of waste. I, I don't, like, with the ocean cleanup, they spoke about how it's safe. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, um, I don't know how safe this is. Is this collecting Fish animals? Well. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. There wasn't a whole hot lot of information is this, about this. Is this on the, in the water right now? I believe so. Okay, cool. It might still be in testing phases. Okay. I'm not sure. Testing um, the pool first, yeah. Well, I hope yeah. so. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really cool. Because I used to have a like a robo back. Mm-hmm. And it's so convenient. You just yeah. press on, you go out, and you come back to a clean house. Did you notice that in the Bangkok airport they have a robo cleaner? No. Half the size of me just running around cleaning. Really? Yeah, super cool. Um, I'm imagining future. Singapore has a bunch of those yeah, on Singapore's the streets. Yeah, really though. clean. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- there's a lot of solutions, like we said, which mm. is which is awesome because usually we tend. I, I could tend go to for take, days. Yeah. About all of the people. Really? You know, 
Ooh, well, th- there was like one article that was about um, 10 new inventions and, you know, yeah, we're yeah. hearing about... A lot of these uni like, students that are coming out. Yeah. And the, yeah. The new what? engineers of the world, like they're just so Crazy. amazing. Mm, yeah. Super creative because they have to solve it. Yeah. But amidst this, I think it's important to note, don't fall in the dangerous trap of, oh, there's things that are being cleaned up so I don't need to worry about my plastic waste. So that that is the danger I think it can cause. And I wanted to do some research into this exact topic in case someone does think that or in case people think that in the future. Recycling does not keep pace with plastic waste at any level, at any level. So there's, there's again, lots of graphs that I'll leave linked below if you go on the website, but... And there's only so many sunglasses that we can you know manufacture um, like that's right park venture that you can't yeah there's only so many like mm. our shoes are made from plastic bottles collected from the ocean Vivo yeah. barefoot good on ya um but is there a huge benefit in recycling reusing yes definitely we can't deny recycling it is a pinnacle will it solve everything no reusing is is the best you can do or, or not having it in the first place using so refusing refusing is one. number one correct so there's lots of different ways you can look at it so in terms of a business sense it makes sense to reuse and recycle and, and Ellen, Ellen MacArthur Foundation did a huge report we're talking about a hundred pages of different companies examples of the fact that there is a ten billion dollar opportunity by just replacing a mere 20% of single-use materials that we have now on the shelf to reusable products. There's, there's lots of different ways, and I won't run through it all. If someone wants to read more, again, I'll leave it linked in, but it cuts production and transportation costs. Like imagine water bottles compared to one reusable bottle. Like there's lots of different cost saves there. Um, it builds brand loyalty. So if you have a Sea Shepherd Keep cup, you want to go to the cafe, and that's you're keeping up with the brand. You Sea Shepherd Keep breaks, you, you buy a new one. Is that a thing? Sea Shepherd Keep Cup? Yeah. Absolutely. Keep Cup have teamed up with the Sea Shepherd to make it. It's just a normal Keep Cup with the black strip with yeah. the Sea Shepherd logo. That's it's actually a very cool looking Keep Cup, yeah. Improves user experience of the superior design. Again, plastic bottle example. Flimsy, you mm. break it, it's cheap, it's crap compared to Frank, our Frank Green bottles is incredibly damaged right now, um, if you can see on the camera. But, however... It, you know... It's not damaged, it's loved. It's, it's used. Um, that's a much better experience for you than a plastic bottle. Um, of course, it optimizes operations and your individual needs are catered for. So, for example, that button. I don't want to unscrew a bottle cap every time. I just want to press a button, that's it. So, And if you want to unscrew, there's bottles like that, those metal ones that keep the unscrew. So it's about yeah, catering. The, the opening does bother me because the... <laughs> The mouths are so wide. Yeah, so you easy spillage. Yeah, I spill it all the time. So this little hole is perfect. To drink from no spillage. Absolutely. So there's, there's, there's lots of reasons to reuse and recycle and, and, and refuse because you have your own thing. Um, the main obstacle with this system of the reduce, reuse, recycle is, well, besides education, of course, is cost. So it, it does cost more. If you look at a plastic bottle here, it, it costs cents. Whereas a reusable bottle will cost you many dollars. Like our Frank Green one was like $50 or something. It's not cheap. It'll eventually pay off. But that initial barrier, it's, it's real. Mm. And we, we can't deny it. Um, so especially if we're looking at the nations that produce the most waste, the ones with the lowest income. So that is a barrier there. And we, we can't 
ignore that. Um, but a solution to that, super simple. We, you, you travel to Queensland or you go to different cities around Berlin, there is a plastic recycling scheme. So you can create a plastic, recycle it, and eventually save up that money, get a reusable system. But also, let's say that a company uh, keeps producing these cheap um, plastic bottles that you purchase. You're not just gonna discard them because it was one cent, you're gonna keep it and recycle it properly because it has now become a cashable commodity. So that is a very important thing we need to look at and implement more. Victoria, our home state, is bringing in a system like that, which I'm really excited about. It should be everywhere. I don't see why it isn't. Um, it does create a slight initial investment and maintenance investment, but eventually it pays for itself. There's something I want to add to that. If you are drinking out of a flimsy plastic bottle every day, we know that that plastic is actually getting into our system. So yes, your Frank Green might, your Frank Green bottle, or would you have a bottle not sponsored, will cost you money now, but that plastic bottle will cost you in healthcare or years of your life later. Mm. 100%. There's lots of uh, different health impacts that you don't want to have that we're just learning about. Like a study of blood being in our lung, uh, plastic being in our lungs mm. came out two months ago. Like it, it's really starting to come out now, the, the different places it's at. Like it's really... Um, really alarming. So what should you ditch? What is the plastic that we are leaving? What are we talking about here? When we're looking around, we don't have too much plastic besides the really durable ones, like what my phone is on. My camera is partly made from plastic, but that is to last for many, many years. So there's lots, <laughs> of, yeah. there's lots of things that we have. What are we saying you should reduce? We're not saying go plastic free because we are not Neanderthals. We cannot uh, live in a modern society with that mentality. So a big thing for me, if you think back to when was the trigger that made you think plastic needs to stop? And I remember watching that straw getting pulled out of that turtle snout. Many, is it a snout? I'm not Nose, sure. Nose. Yeah. Many, many years ago when that came out, 2015 I believe it was. And a lot of people now hate straws. And some people still love straws. So I want to look at what is the actual damage that straws are doing? And realistically, and to my surprise, they only amount for 0.03% of the plastic polluted, so generated, actually. So if we were to remove, eradicate fully plastic straws, single-use plastic straws, our plastic problem would only be reduced 0.03%. Now, again, the reason I'm saying this is because you need to focus on the bigger things. However, that's still tons and tons of plastic on a global scale. So and I feel like straws are the easiest things to do. Super easy. Super easy. If you think you're going to, like... I don't know. It's just so easy to get rid of. 100%. If you are that concerned about having a straw, you can carry a metal one or a bamboo one on you. Mm. If it is that important to you. Can I live without my straw? <laughs> Some people, I don't, I, it's, it's a strange mentality. But yeah, it is the easiest thing to ditch, but it's definitely not the biggest fish to fry, so to yeah. speak. Um, recycling. I want to touch on recycling for a second. So... We talked well, wait, before. Wait, what is the biggest problem? Are you going to get into that? I don't have that. Okay. I don't have the biggest problem. But in terms of amount, plastic straws up there. I know that. Plastic bag, plastic straw. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I'll talk into different things we can use that for, but I don't have the actual biggest thing that's coming from. Because again, it could be, the reason I talked about plastic straws in a way that it is produced in this way is because we don't know when we pick up these microplastics what it was. Yeah. So we will never be able to work out what is the biggest thing. So we have to look at production, which we know plastic straws have a huge role in the microplastics, but not it's not the biggest role in terms of ocean plastic. Yeah. So just touching on recycling for a moment, this is really difficult, so I don't want to spend too long on it. It depends on your municipality, your council. Don't just throw crap in the recycling bin. Don't wish cycle. If you're not sure, unfortunately, it is better for you to put it in landfill. Um, always rinse. But we live on our devices. Your phone will never be more than one meter away from you. Just Google it. Seriously. Is foil recyclable in Wyndham? You will be able to find the answer. It may not be that easy. We have done lots of Google searches like this and it isn't the most accessible no, information, but you will find it. Yeah. Just do some search. 100%. It, otherwise, this foil will last longer than your grandkids. It doesn't decompose very quickly. No. It's going to end up in we the soil. We actually have no idea how long it will decompose in general because the plastic hasn't been around long enough. Like yeah. they say 400 years, but it's like, you don't really know that. It no. could be longer. It could be, how long does the microplastic live for? Like, and it just, it doesn't technically ever disappear, really. No, it will end up in the soil, which then feeds our food and then we eat it and then it's in us. I mean, eventually, I hope in 500 years, if it goes into sort of decomposes back into a carbon molecule, but we're talking 500 years. That is a utopic amount of time. But I also think that the, the oil is so far under our earth for a it reason. It is quite far. For a reason. Yep, 100%. Um, now, just touching on the recycling again, while we're on that, even if you do the right thing and you recycle, not all of your recycling is going to get put in the complete box that could be due to infrastructural reasons so if you're in a nation that doesn't have the proper structure to recycle foil or paper they're just going to put it in landfill anyway it's going to come there and it depends on how your bins work some have like a bin just for greenway some have a bin just for paper and cardboard and then there's tins there's different councils so in the center of australia they generally have a bin for everything but that's not everywhere and so it gets there let's look at a western country like england if you put everything in the right box, three to four percent of goods that can be recycled aren't recycled just because it's not economical, um, mistakes happen. Um, food waste. Food waste, contamination, that's right. So if we can't recycle, what is the next best thing, Shana? Refuse. No, refuse is the best thing. The best thing. <laughs> I might have worded that incorrectly, but yes. based on those recycling stats, we know very clearly refusing is the best way to go. And, you know, we could also fall into the trap of alternative plastics. It's biodegradable, it's compostable, it's all these things. But, I mean, when we chat, chatted to Ross and Ramona Hedefin, which was a great episode, they, they had a fantastic point. Well, that still requires energy to produce. And it still actually requires an, a specific environment to break down. So something like my episode with Nick Consumpus, he said, if you put a head of lettuce in landfill, it doesn't just decompose in a week. It takes up to 25 years. Yes. 
because there's actually no definition for what a bioplastic has to be. There's different oxidation levels, there's different bacteria that is required, and it could take 100 years and to decompose. And of course, there might not be any oxygen when the next lot of rubbish goes on top. on top. Yeah, yeah. so it, it is not a solution to alternatives, to, to plastics. Don't just look for compostable. Yes, if you have to get it and you're yearning for something, look for those labels. And if it's compostable, Give it to someone with a compost that has the proper environment. That What's is that it. website? Find my compost? Yeah, or something where you can find, especially for urban environments, if you're mm. living in an apartment, for example, that was a fantastic way yeah. to get that. Uh, but also there's plastic alternatives. So say you want to go shopping, you can get organic tote bags, which if, if we're looking at an organic cotton bag, there's stats, and again, I'll put it all in the show notes. It takes 149 uses to make that worth it in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So the best ones are actually the coals or, or the Woolworths. The, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, there's Recyclon that are sturdy, but it has to last you at least eight times for it to be worth it in terms of the long run. But saying that, I've got an organic cotton tote bag. As long as I've had it for longer than half a year. Mm, every day. I use it almost every day. 100%. So there's, there's lots of ways to do it, but I think unless you've got anything to add, the biggest takeaway from my deep dive and the research I've done is refuse, is 100%. I don't think we've touched on refuse nearly enough. No. Well, actually we haven't at all. So by refuse, we mean when you're ordering a drink at a cafe, say no straw. Mm. If you're out at a food court and you're ordering food, and they give you plastic cutlery, say no. Mm. So what's the alternative? You need to bring your own. Mm. If, well, we've been on tours lately and they've been offering us water bottles. And we're like, no, thank you. We've got our own. Same with your bags. We go and buy fruit and every single time I go to grab a plastic bag to put it no in. No plastic, no plastic. No, thank you. And they're all very understanding. A couple it. of times they're a bit confused, especially yeah, when we got ice cream and they're like, you don't want a spoon? Like, we've got You've our got own. You point to the bag. Yes. Yep. Um, unfortunately, today we went to a pub. Oh, goodness. I said no straw with my drink. Um, I saw it get made. The girl put the straw in. The girl that I spoke to that saw that, that said that knew I didn't want a straw took that straw out and put it in the bin. Oh, we like, saw it happen in front of us. We're both looking at each that. other. Oh and we're like, did you just see what happened? Oh, it was so frustrating. Yeah, the way they that people use plastic is so strange. And, and it's in countries where, let's take this very specific pub, for example. You walk outside, I promise you, you look to the left, you'll see at least 500 pieces of trash, big and small. Look to the right, maybe a thousand. Like there's, you see it. Like why do you not think that it's not, with Australia and the US and other cleaner nations, cleaner in quotes actually I should say, you can't see the rubbish. So it's easier to have that cognitive dissonance. But if you can see it, it is the most confusing and perplexing thing that you're like, it's not me, it's someone else. Yeah. And you think that. I think it just, again, comes down to education. So how do we educate these people? Great question. I don't know how, because like you said, I feel like the trash on the floor is education enough, but it's not. It's not. 
Maybe they're like trash on the floor. What else can you do? Yeah. You know? um, but yeah. But yeah. So re- the moral re- of that refuse. is refuse. And it, and to answer the question at the beginning, it is possible to have a plastic-free ocean. Probably not ever. One hundred percent. We don't know when. There isn't a when. It is possible in a uto- not even in a utopic future. As technology gets better, as Gen Zers grow up, because there is fantastic amount of evidence and studies looking at Gen Z and the way that they actually think about climate change, which. I could dive into it in a future episode, but there is a lot of positives coming out of this next generation in regards to the solutions that they come up with. Um, so I'm really excited about all that. And I am, do you think, do you think it is, it's going to get done in our lifetime, plastic free? Or plastic, uh, uh, I'm going to say fish mostly. More fish? Mm. I don't know. Mm. I think it'll get much worse before it gets better, but then once it really starts to get better. Yeah, oh, look, there's so many people in my life that are just still so plastic heavy. Mm. Um, so it's it's hard, It's really hard to understand, especially when they've got people like you and I in yeah. our lives and we are literally vegan for the environment. Yeah. We are, you know, cutting a... Um, we're cutting stuff out of our diet, out of our life, and these people are just consuming and taking yeah. all this plastic in so it's a bit hard to understand but i'm thinking hopefully we in, can slowly in, educate everyone around us 100 percent. i'm thinking in the in the context of me being hopeful that they'll eventually the technology will get so good that it'll start taking out progressively more mm-hmm. than is actually getting dumped in what certain solutions like that river system that costs five billion comes into play yeah well Touching on the ocean cleanup again, they are live, like working on a system 003. Great. So on a larger scale. Larger, yeah. So just need another 26 of those, <laughs> putting it near China, Indonesia, and one at the GBBR or whatever the well, uh, analogy is. Hopefully this smaller one will go to one of the other patches mm, great. and then keep focusing on the Great Pacific yeah, another way to reduce your water, especially if you're in Asia. So let's get into our sustainability tip. SteriPen. Not so, reduce your water. Reduce sorry? your plastic. Reduce your plastic. Don't, reduce, take, your don't water. reduce your water. Hydrate yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you're traveling, hiking, and whatever it may be, and you're worried about water bacteria. So if you're in Asia, I understand why Westerners use plastic water bottles. Yeah. It is safer to drink generally, not in, I mean, I don't know if you compare the plastic. We don't know the studies, but... Anyway, people opt for plastic because of the bacteria content in water. A SteriPen, you pop it in and you just circle it around for 90 seconds. Should I get... No, I'm connected to my computer for my mic. Oh, yeah, of course. It's not within (laughs) Andre's dish. But it looks like like a pregnancy test, like a little bit bigger and... (laughs) Sure. Something like that. And it has like these two... um, Pins? Sensors, yeah, sensor pins that senses the bacteria and the protozoa in the water and it reduces them with the UV, eliminates 99.99% of them with a UV light. So stir it around for 90 seconds, it, it flashes green if it's all good, it can do either 500 ml or a liter, and that's it. So we just put tap water in to, for one liter, stir it around for 90 seconds, it takes four batteries, you pop it out, that's it, you screw it back on, you're good to go for the day. So that's how we've been plastic free when it comes to water bottles during our time here we haven't had one in four weeks fantastic and we don't have it at home so we can do the whole year without or even more yeah forever forever without using a plus so that's 
a really good sustainability tip. But unless you have anything else to add, we can move on to our good news stories. Yay. Do you want to start us off? Okay. I've only got the one though. Oh, if you've only got one, I'm going to start us. I've got two. So, Canberra, for those who don't know, is Australia's capital city. We'll be phasing out fossil fuel cars by 2035. So good. Fantastic news. ACT coming with the goods. They are... Uh, they seem to be such a progressive city and territory considering how political it is. Like that's where the parliament house in Australia is. So it's a lot of um, political leaders are living there, both progressive and conservative. They are absolutely killing the progression in Australia. Legalised weed. They've got drug testing sites, which we know is incredible for the safety of especially festival goers. Um, And now this fossil fuel car situation. So... The purchase of new petrol cars, how it's going to work, the purchase of new petrol cars will be prohibited from 2035 onwards. So 80 to 90% of the new car, new vehicles sold by 2030 will be zero emission vehicles. So, and they will also offer a 15K, they will offer 15K of interest-free loans to buy electric cars um, and two years of free registration for new or used zero emission vehicles Cool. Um, and that's not extended to existing fuel vehicles. That's really cool. So this is a lot of great news. So even if you're buying a used one, you get two years for your sa- That's great. Correct. Which, you know, registration is about $700 per year. It is. That's a chunky. 800. 800. That's a chunky. <laughs> when did you put last oh, pay, Rojo? It's, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, it is. It, that's great news. That is a great step in our um, turn to go EV. And I didn't put this on here, but there's about, I think it was $20 million that's going to invest between Sydney and Melbourne for hydrogen fuel cell stations as well. So I haven't looked into that, but that's a really great um, vehicle. Yeah, because Australia is so vast. Mm. It is hard to have set. things in the middle. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like really very difficult. spread out. Like what, I've got friends that are traveling in WA at the moment and they were struggling with LPG up north of WA. Like, gas. How weird is that? It just blows my mind. I would understand if it was electric. But I guess this also means that electric cars will come down in value, in price. 100%. So they'll be more affordable for the average person, which is, yeah, really, really excellent. It is really excellent. Um, do you want to go on to your good news story? Qantas is bringing mock meat to its menu. No way. I did not see or hear anything like this. That's super, super cool. And obviously we are very into traveling. We were both in the travel industry I am currently. So travel is a really big part of our lives. Um, with the fact that it is so high in emissions, we love to be able to offset it and keep it low whatever way we can. And obviously eating mock meat and vegetables is a way we do that. So by the end of 2022, Qantas plans to have burgers, bolognese and schnitzels on its menu in Whoa, their lounge and on board flights. This is in all cabins too. So it's not just like Ooh, not I'm in business class, business. I get, you know, I get all of the uh, all of the goods. Quoted from the Qantas chef, which is Neil Perry. Okay. Have you heard of him? No. Hmm. He owns a restaurant in Sydney as well. Fancy. So uh, yeah, very fancy. Yeah. We'll have a complete plant-based dish on each of the menus and we've also started looking at plant-based meats like beyond impossible and v2 
V2, which is an Australian product. Mm. So I feel like they are leaning towards that. Great. I love but, V2. Yeah, V2 is excellent. Mm. Um, Delta, Air New Zealand, and American Airlines are already using the Impossible brand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. How incredible. Very. They say that fake meats will be trialed in the lounges first with Qantas. Perry explains that domestic is faster than international and lounges are faster than both. So they'll get trialed in the lounges first and then be brought on board, obviously depending on how well they do. Um, you know, if, mm. if schnitzels do really well and burgers don't, it'll yeah, yeah, balance course. out. So, yeah, his Sydney restaurant is also partnered with V2 to offer vegan options. Awesome. Yeah. He did go on to mention that, um, you know, they'll never remove meat and your yeah. business class people don't have to worry. They'll always have steak. But you never know. Never know. I'd never, never say, say never. never. Mm. <clears throat> well, I'm going to stick with the travel trend here for a second with my final good news story. So Rex, which is a country town, low cost airline in Australia. Now they're retrofitting their airplanes for electric propulsion engines. Wow. Right? So this will take place after trials in 2024 and will hopefully lead to cheaper fares and lower carbon footprint on their flights. So they plan on installing engines that are powered by both batteries and hydrogen. Now, this is fantastic timing because next week I got my episode with Professor Pericles from Cranfield University, and it's pretty much an hour, hour and a half, how long it was, on just hydrogen engines and the possibility. And he particularly works with uh, Boeing, uh, Rolls-Royce, and, and other engine companies. So we'll be talking a lot about that. So hydrogen powered airplanes mixed with a battery cell. So this is fantastic news. Rex is the first one in Australia, but there are different carriers around the world that are testing this out. So how good is that? Yeah. Well, there's some airlines doing biofuel. They're doing this. So Etihad, yeah, did biofuel. I remember that. British Airways as well. Oh, really? Wow. It's, um, the travel industry are really trying to step up because we know that they emit a lot of emissions. Yeah. It's um it's it's a huge one. So it's really good to see that they're trying to lower that and get on board with the Paris Agreement and etc. Hundred percent. And Rex did not see that coming. No, a regional, regional tiny yeah, small That's amazing. It's always the small, you know, small businesses and stuff that are very progressive or can be more progressive. Mm. Imagine Qantas trying to be, they'd have to invest billions of dollars just for the idea and the board members just wouldn't get on board because it would cost them correct Mm. so fantastic episode we're going for about to be two hours so i hope that we have given you some sort of education on the topic of plastics it is a topic very near and dear to us because it does affect every single one of this one of us on this planet um, if you did learn something, reach out to us on the Instagram, TikToks, and all the good stuff. We are posting vegan travel stuff on Instagram, TikTok. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, please do so. Come and see how easy it is to travel vegan. 100%. So the upcoming episodes are, like I mentioned, Pre- Professor Pericles, which will be a really great, informative episode. Um, I do recommend you watch the video version of that because he came prepared with PowerPoint slides, which I reference in the video. So good. We've got environmental blogger Jeanu, and for an emotional episode, we've got Kate and Mick McIntyre, who 
who will be touching a lot on kangaroo deaths and particularly their new series um, on SBS, which is Eating Plants, which we watched a few episodes of, which is really, really um, well done documentary. So we're traveling around Asia for another month and a half. Um, so the next episode we film will, I think, be in Phu Quoc in Vietnam. So good. On the so beach. So if you have any recommendations for restaurants or cool places that we can see in Vietnam, let us know. That's it. But besides that, that is all from me. If you love the episode, leave us a review, comment, subscribe, all the good stuff. Connect with us. That is right. But until next time, stay happy, eat plants, peace.